Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Today we have Jennifer Reeder on the show. Jennifer is the writer-director behind one of the latest movies from IFC Midnight, Knives and Skin. Knives and Skin is a movie that I don't even know how to begin describing. You just have to see it. It's on one hand a trippy David Lynch-style nightmare while being a deeply disturbing portrait of suburban America that's reminiscent of Todd Salandes, but it's not derivative of either of these directors. No, Knives and Skin is very much its own beast. In it, Jennifer created a beautifully surreal and ironic world that has the kind of clarity of vision, confidence, and cohesiveness of someone like Charlie Kaufman or Spike Jones, all while being entirely a unique voice. All in all, Knives and Skin is a real treat and a real experience and hands down one of the most exciting new visions in horror to date. I had a really great time having this conversation with Jennifer and I honestly can't wait to see what she does next. Now, without further ado, please give it up for Jennifer Reeder. How's it going? Congratulations, first of all. Knives and Skin was, uh, I found there to be something so miraculous about it because when you have a tone like that and the actors are all kind of on that exact same level, I can imagine that being incredibly complex to direct. But when it comes together, there's a real, a real kind of synergistic magic to the, to, to creating a world as specific as that. And it's rare to see a movie like this that just feels like it's so pure to your directorial vision. Uh, Yeah. Knives and Skin in its final draft is exactly the film that I set out to make. I know that that is not something that, you know, all writers and directors get, get to say, but it really and truly is exactly the film that I set out to make. And it wasn't, it was not a difficult film to direct. I um, am based in Chicago, which has a really vibrant and super well-respected theater scene. Uh, And we cast this entire film um, out of Chicago and in particular out of that theater scene. So for instance, four of the adults in the film are Steppenwolf ensemble members. Oh, that's cool. All of the young people have extensive um, theater experience. All the people in the film in addition, also have experience in front of a camera doing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, film and television. So there wasn't ever a moment where I was trying to, you know, bring someone's performance, you know, down to the camera as opposed Mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, how, how one might act on stage. But what that, what that meant in terms of being able to use uh, all of these really brilliant theater actors who I consider totally fearless um, or I would, and I would say that about, about, you know, all professional theater actors. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something that really is totally fearless about a person who, you know, night after night after night will do it, will, will do what they do in front of a, a live audience mm-hmm. with all of those variables that could change it in right. any moment. Right. Um, and that was absolutely the case for, for the, for the actors in this film. And, what I did say to them ahead of time was that we were going to create something that felt like it was really hovering just above reality in terms of its visual, you know, so it had to, it was going to have this kind of um, atmosphere that would be really uh, distinct. Right. 
And then I reminded them all that there was so much melodrama in the story itself that I wanted them to really lean into um, less affect, at the very least, deadpan, you know, at the most extreme. Mm -hmm. And that actually seemed to make sense to everybody. No one's, no one, um, no one argued with me with that on that point. It's, some people didn't get it on the first couple of takes. Right. You know, I mean, the young people in particular sort of wanted to kind of go to that like teen angst place. Right. Um, and I, you know, would let them finish the scene and say, you know, let's take it again. Less, less, less. And then I would finally get the performance that I, that I wanted. Um, and f- for me, the, the, um, the kind of absurdity of the film or the more um, awkward parts or even the most kind of eccentric parts. Um, I feel like the way that they work is because they're, they're grounded in really authentic, believable performances. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the fearlessness of theater actors. And I was going to ask, was there something that made you specifically want to work with theater actors in this regard? Well, in Chicago, that's really what you have. Right. There are no, there are no, uh, you know, movie stars living in Chicago. Well, I take that back. John Cusack lives in Chicago. Okay, right. I think Hannibal <laughs> Burris lives in Chicago now. <laughs> you know, um, but but Chicago actors are theater actors, right? And I have for a long time, uh, you know, mined from that community in the short films I've made leading up to Knives and Skin, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite kind of. Um, theater actors actually are uh, the improv comedians. I mean, I find that, um, you know, the, the, the improvers are even sort of, you know, more fearless and they are quick, right? You know, I mean, they can turn the temperature of the room, you know, in a heartbeat because they have to, you know, they have mm-hmm. to sort of like read, read a room from, you know, millisecond to millisecond. And so, you know, when you're doing a scene like so many in, in Knives and Skin where the the tone of the scene, you know, shifts halfway through and oftentimes really dramatically, mm-hmm. you know, it's important that you have an actor who, who can navigate that, you know, U-turn um, effortlessly, right. you know, make that labor invisible, you know? So for instance, the, in the film, the um, Alex Moss, who plays the substitute teacher had never done a feature length film before. He's not an actor. He's a stand up comedian. Hmm. And I think he uh, really nailed that part. You know, I mean, he had the right look on the one hand, but he also just has had this way of being able to, like I said, kind of navigate the U-turns in the scenes that he's, in and make and make that movement that pacing seem effortless yeah now it's interesting that you bring up improv actors because i always think as of recently been feeling like improv is not necessarily a lost art but having actors who have a background in improv you don't see a lot of it and when you observe movies that do have actors who all do improv there's an unmistakable chemistry because they're all naturally trained to feed off of each other and i would imagine that in a movie like yours where the kind of collective energy is so important for all the actors to kind of be on the same level of improv must have really come in handy. Absolutely. And not, and, but really just general, exactly what you just said that, um, that, that theater actors are used to 
genuinely reacting to what their their stage partner is giving to them right you know um i think or i wonder sometimes if if um, people who actors who are exclusively um working in film already have that understanding that the scene's going to be cut up and and maybe they maybe they really are someone who's 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 acting against you know the first ad not actually acting against the person that they are having have a scene with because it's right. all going to get cut cut together you know um i don't know that for a fact um that's not how i like to to um to work and i found that you know in so many of the scenes that required you know some some emotional tension um you know the you know, actors who had even already worked together, mm-hmm. you know, because actually the four, the the sheriff, um, I'll, I'll call her the pregnant mom, the tiger <laughs> t-shirt mom, and the clown dad are all the, the, those are the Steppenwolf ensemble members. Oh, wow. And they actually become, they are actually the two, you know, the two um, kind of parents, the, the two sets of parents. They yeah. all know each other. They've all worked together. Um, and um, they all get along actually in real life too. So there wasn't, that wasn't an issue. Um, but they, they're, the way that they really captured a scene and and were able to to um, uh, you know act through it in in a pacing that felt really normal and mm-hmm. and natural where if if we didn't want to cut it at all and use it as one take we we could have you know I mean we didn't mostly be sort of like I like to do cutaways anyway just for this for the sake of it um and uh and i was gonna say one one more quick thing about about the about improv comedians in particular is that um you know casting them in dramatic roles is also a really great idea you know and i know yeah. that we've seen that all the time and when you know if you look about look at the serious roles um that you know robin williams did or even the sort of serious roles that someone like jim carrey has done right. i mean they're incredibly moving i mean mm-hmm. the real that all of that emotion literally is under the surface you know for those people i mean i think that it's great to put them in front of the camera i i am emphatically against you know like dating an improv comedian you know (laughs) for the same reasons i love casting them in my film but that's another story makes sense (laughs) the characters all seem to have so many a multitude of different layers of tragedy and neuroses and they just all seem so well developed i was curious as to how you were able to approach each character for instance do they all have backstories how much of it was you telling the actors here's what happened to you when you were 12 or you know whatever and how much did the actors bring to it? what was the the character creation process yeah that's a good question and there are a lot of characters there were a lot of people to keep track of and everyone does have a backstory it's not a really extensive backstory not not because i don't i don't believe in that or i didn't have time and or i didn't want to do it um but it was enough of a backstory so that um i could give my actors um a place to start mm-hmm. and then they could perhaps figure out the rest which i think is actually really important you know right. to have the relationship with your actors where you trust what they bring to the set also and you're not right. just dictating you know um the you're not dictating to them the character that they are embodying you know i can't i'm not good in front of the camera i cannot act at all i admire so much i'm in, I'm in awe of the it, 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 from the performances in this mm-hmm. film you know um and i did i gave everybody enough information um to to kind of get them like 
into the skin of that character. And then they had to really sort of make it fit with whatever additional information they they brought to it. Mm-hmm. And they all seem to have a very natural chemistry with, with each other. And then being stage actors, I would imagine you must have rehearsed pretty extensively. Not at all. Really? Not at all. We had, there was a snafu with the, with the, um, the contracts. Okay. So no one could get paid until the first day that they, that any of them set foot on set. Oh, wow. That's, that's not at all ideal. So we didn't even, you know, because when you're an ethical production, you pay people for their time. Yeah, of course. And, um, we didn't even have a, we didn't have a table reading. Uh, I ended up, um, you know, just tagging along with the wardrobe mistress when she would go to people's houses to do the fitting, okay, you know, and so, then just kind of talk them through, right, you know, their character. And everyone was totally amenable to that. Of course, no one said, you know, get out of my house. Where's my paycheck? You know, I mean, <laughs> these are people also who are deeply committed to um, to acting and right. would not have taken on this script unless they really believed in it. It is a, it is a particular kind of a project. Um, and some of whom I had worked with before. And so, you know, they they knew that um, they knew what, exactly what I was doing and why. So we had n- no rehearsal time at all until people would come on set and, you, you know, we would run lines um, while while, you know, the the, the lights, et cetera, were getting set up or I would have additional conversations when people were getting, you know, going through hair and makeup and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But everybody came to set you know, with an idea of who their characters were, with an idea of who the the other people in that character's life were, everyone knew their lines. You know, it it was it was a beautiful professional set with also lots and lots of laughing yeah. and lots of camaraderie, um, lots of people staying on set after they'd been wrapped for the day because they wanted to kind of watch other scenes or they wanted to wait and, you know, have dinner with everybody. You know, it was a really, um, there it was a lots of, um, it was like a a very good vibe set for as brutal as the film is on some level and for as kind of emotionally traumatizing (laughs) as the film is. Um, it was, you know, the, the vibe on set was, um, was really, you know, powerful and positive. That's great. I'm so surprised that there were no rehearsals. It sounds like that may have worked in your favor in some way. Cause I mean, the performances feel very cohesive. But yeah. I would imagine that, um, I mean, Spielberg doesn't rehearse mm-hmm. for whatever reason. There's something about the magic that people bring when they're kind of completely raw, when they show up on stage having or on screen, rather, having not rehearsed it. But right. it's I mean, interesting. The stuff that I did that we had to rehearse were, I mean, there's there's a, um, a fight scene when a dress gets ripped off. We shot that in the middle of the night and we did rehearse that because it was, uh, we had a stunt it's coordinator. Like a stunt, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that stuff, you know, there was some rehearsal around that moment but also just on set you mm. know while people were you know we 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 um scheduled in like an extra you know 90 minutes in that day so that right. the, so that the stunt coordinator could have some time with the actors but it was not extensive and i do think that it's the case that oftentimes the first couple of takes are the best takes, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I usually go, I will usually, you know, do another one for safety or maybe there's a a word that really trips up an actor and I just wanted to, you know, get it. So, but, but oftentimes, you know, I mean, I'm not somebody who's like, take 20, take 21, you know, I really, I really like to be able to, to trust my actors and, and to, you know, uh, um, 
to to sort of get you know get what I get what I get I suppose but but um, the Ever like I said, everybody everybody who, who who came to set was totally prepared, and mm-hmm. I and I was hoping that that would be the case. And they're all professional actors, um, but you never know, right? Did you film in Chicago? Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was Chicago. We okay, shot cool. um, the interiors of the houses were shot uh, in Melrose Park and Jefferson Park, which is like on the north side, actually mm-hmm. right under an O'Hare flight pattern. Um, oh, that must have been a nightmare. So my poor sound man was you know just had a, a nervous was in a, uh, constantly on the verge of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Um, we shot it. Um, the high school is Taft High School, which is also on the north side, which is um, the the school where the uh, story of Greece was based oh, wow. on because the guy who wrote Greece went to that high school. That was just That's coincidental. Cool. That's crazy. Um, but I love that, you know, that was another kind of uh, it wasn't shot at Taft, but the guy who wrote Greece went to Taft High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just loved that it was a really it's a, it's that tells you how old it is. It's a real vintage school. Um, and then all the exteriors were shot 30 miles south of the city in Lamont, which is a perfect little small Midwestern town. It's mm-hmm. got a refinery. It's got a quarry. It's got, you know, two rivers. Very um, Americana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so it's not supposed to be, it's not a rural or it's not, it's not an urban story rather. It's a rural story. Um, and it's a Midwestern story. It doesn't, it's not. It, it doesn't identify itself as being outside of Chicago right. by any means, you know, and I just simply describe it as Midwestern that, that, that certainly covers thousands of miles of, of, of land in the middle of the country. Um, but it was great, you know, shooting it in and around Chicago. And that, like I said, that was a Chicago cast, but it was also an all um, Chicago crew. And the, um, you know, the, the cast itself is really um, diverse, you know, mm-hmm. and, and inclusive and, and the behind the camera looked the same, you know, as a female director, it felt really important to try to have as many women behind the camera as two, and not just in, you know, the art department, you know, right. which is like, you know, common hair and makeup, for instance, but, you know, G&E and the camera department, you know, it was like, it was like um, some, a good, some good girl power on that set. That's awesome. The movie had such a an incredible visual look to it, and some of the shots had such specificity to how they looked. So I'm really curious as to how you worked with your DP and how you were able to develop the look of the movie. I mean, do you create lookbooks? Do you have like photo albums, or how do you how did you create the look, and how did you translate that to your DP? So my DP Chris Rohano and I have worked together for about six years. So he and I have worked together a lot, and and really share a kind of shorthand, not just mm. on set in terms of you know just the general kind of logistics, but we um, like the same movies. Yeah. So when we were setting out to make this, I just said, I wanted the, the whole thing to feel like it was, um, you know, hovering above reality in terms of that production design, which included the, you know, the, the lighting palette, for instance, the color palette and the, and the lighting. Um, We knew we wanted to shoot um, anamorphic, Mm-hmm. Um, and we settled on Tadeo vintage anamorphic lenses, which which do a very kind of specific thing with light. You know, they really can create a kind of a softness around colored light that that has this kind of hazy atmospheric sense about it. You know, so right. um, that felt also like a, the that that felt like the right choice, and so that was a very specific choice to use those vintage lenses. And it, and in addition to that, I just said I needed you know this I, I, this is a really this is a film about female empowerment and um, I want to, you know, I want to think about the color pink 
You know, I mm -hmm. want to make pink symbolic. So the the whole film was kind of drenched in these like pinks and purples and yeah. and and sort of um, violets, then leaning into kind of turquoise and you know cyans and whatnot. Um, so we knew that that the color would be vibrant. And we roped in um, Louis Lukasik as our gaffer, who's actually the head gaffer for Chicago PD. He doesn't get to drench that in magenta um, <laughs> on set every day. Um, and we were totally all on board with it. And then we literally did start a group WhatsApp that was kind of our lookbook. Oh, that's I mean, cool. My production designer, Audrey Sirwat, did have a super extensive um, actual, you know, physical sort of lookbook in the production office, like the walls were just covered with, you know, her images. Mm -hmm. um, but we had this ongoing um, group WhatsApp that included me, Louis, Chris, um, Audrey Sirwat, and then her team in the art department that we just jammed up with content, you know, and um, it it involved film stills. We looked at, um, you know, Argento and other Giallo directors. Right. Um, we looked at the cinematography of Robbie Mueller, who's done some really beautiful work with um, light. But we looked at the fine art photography also of somebody like Gregory Crudson and Todd Hedo, who mm -hmm. do these really interesting ways with light and tableau, and for, for instance. Um, and then to deal with the body of Carolyn Harper, we actually looked at a bunch of figure painting. And we sort of settled on Jenny Seville, who makes these kind of um, really goopy kind of grotesque um figure paintings so the 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 visual um uh influence was pretty broad mm -hmm. interesting so so you wrote the movie obviously as well i did i wrote it what was your writing process like because the the had again i mean i keep using the word specificity but there was such a specific tone and way that people talked and it was consistent they were all very distinct characters but you could tell they were in this very cohesive well thought out universe that feels like i don't know somewhere around 10 percent left of what of our reality <laughs> yeah but what was the writing process like in order to get into the characters heads and to get into that specific humanity and that specific kind of universe that you had created so the the dialogue that i write is is um is very um specific and very particular. I mean, mm -hmm. I set out to, I, I, I know that. I mean, I don't sort of set out to say like, write particular dialogue. Right. But, but as a writer, I know that um, there are just certain things that I want, certain words that I want a character to use and certain words that I, that I, that a character will never use, for mm -hmm. instance, you know? And I want sometimes the, the exchanges to feel um, like, um, you know, like, feel not not poetic but like poems in, yeah. a, in a way and for some of the scenes to feel like they are haiku if you if in a specific kind of poem let's say um because because of course like in in reality um uh, you know i can use my own self as an example i talk over people i mumble there's far too many likes and you knows etc so film dialogue can never be actually authentic. Right. Um, even the kind of mumblecore films, you know, are nuanced to mm -hmm. a point. I really am drawn to, as a consumer of film, um, this kind of stilted poetic dialogue. And, you know, I, I was just revisiting the work of Whit Stillman, who did Barcelona and Metropolitan, Last Days of Disco. And his films are compared to like a comedy of manners, you know, which mm. I thought was really interesting to think about um, my films in or Knives and Skin in particular, and the short films leading up to it that are very similarly written. Right. Um, like in that vein, you know, in a, in the, in the, in a, or even in the way that, you know, like Beckett plays are, 
are 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 written. Um, and there was no improvisation for as much as I said that I, you know, I love working with um, people who can Im- improvise. Um, no one was allowed to, to improvise and everyone had to stick directly to this, to the script. It's, you know, I, I craft those scenes within an inch of their life. Right. And for me, the way that this, that the scenes are constructed, I always know that there's going to be a moment where the scene shifts, whether mm-hmm. it like the scene starts off very serious and ends up funny, starts off funny and serious, starts off sad, ends up in someplace else, or, you know, and I'm using very kind of ham fisted words, but, um, there I'm not finished with a scene until I know that it, that it's going to take a turn. Uh, and that's also very specific. And I know that in general, you know, like good, good screenwriters will always have, you know, each scene has its own kind of arc. I'm not really talking Mm -hmm. about that. I'm talking about like truly a moment where the scene takes a pointed shift and you re- and and asks the audience to to kind of like reverse and <laughs> and retrace right for some people i think that's probably um going to be frustrating and disruptive but i really think if you if you buckle into this film and just let yourself go on the ride you're going to enjoy it yeah definitely i certainly did <laughs> so last few questions as a writer director filmmaker were there any resources or books that were particularly helpful or formidable to you either from an artistic perspective or from a career perspective well in my you know, in my life outside of, you know, the a glamorous film set, I am a university professor. So I teach right. at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And I, um, you know, every couple of semesters, I teach a screenwriting class. And we use that Robert McKee book uh, story, mm. which, of course, is 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 like um, is satirized in um, adaptation. adaptation. But it's a good book. You know, it's yeah. a good it's a good book to to talk to to talk. A, uh, you know, a brand new screenwriter through how stories work. Why, mm-hmm. why, why, why storytelling um, endures, you know, as an art form and why you love the films that you love. What makes characters engaging? What makes a reveal um, I- impactful, you right. know, what is a satisfying ending? All of these, you know, really kind of deconstructing what a story is and what storytelling can be that's potential and then plugging those kind of principles into whatever idea you have mm-hmm. um seems really important and so you know it's not like i return to that text for um you know on my like when i'm not teaching it to kind of recall but it's always great when i when you know every third semester and i come back um to teaching that class and i'm like oh that's right yeah yeah i, I you know don't forget the setup and the payoff you know right. and i'm not talking about these kind of um you know like a formula right it really is the principle i mean it's the case if you you know if if you go go have coffee with someone after this and you say like hey something really funny happened to me today you know all the elements that 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 he talks about in that book a kind of inciting incident and then you know you kind of set the story up and then mm-hmm. you introduce the characters and then something happens and then people react to it i mean that's those are the those are the the principles of any kind of good story that people tell around a dinner table you know etc right. so I, um, you know, for as wacky as, as maybe Knives and Skin seems to be, I really set out to, to write in a compelling story mm-hmm. and compelling characters. And I set out to make a film that is, is, is wide open, but that has a satisfying ending and not just that, but a hopeful ending, yeah. for instance. So, yeah. Very cool. 
Well, Jennifer, this was so much fun. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Nick. Any uh, parting wisdom or advice for aspiring filmmakers out there? Oh, yeah. I always say um, show up, um, say yes, be prepared, and don't be an asshole. Nice. All right. Thank you again. Yep. All right. Really enjoyed that conversation. So here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Jennifer Reeder. Number one, consider casting theater actors. So Jennifer hails from Chicago, which doesn't have as much of a film scene, but does have a very active theater scene. As such, just about Jennifer's entire cast consists of theater actors, as well as stand-up and improv comedians. Theater actors and comedians not only bring a very strong work ethic to the set, but are usually adept at a very unique level of nuance that can seriously serve their performances. A lot of directors have spoken about the benefits of working with theater actors, among them Stuart Gordon, whose entire cast for Reanimator were, at the time, all stage actors. So if you're making an indie film and you don't happen to live in New York or L.A., you might want to consider hitting up your local theater or comedy club for a casting call. Number two, learn story. Jennifer spoke about the importance of learning story and structure and how the book Story by Robert McKee benefited her when she approached Knives and Skin. Despite the fact that Knives and Skin does not follow traditional story structure, it defies the rules in a way that is indicative of understanding the rules. In other words, despite operating on its own unique and surreal plot trajectory, the movie delivers the character arcs, catharses, and payoffs that come with understanding how story works. So Jennifer recommends that you check out Story by Robert McKee. Number three, stick to your vision. Throughout this conversation, you hear me talk a lot about how specific this movie is, and it's because the vision behind it feels so refreshingly raw, unique, and uncompromised. This is how films should be made. A director with a signature as strong as Jennifer's comes with sticking to your guns and not compromising. These are the kind of uniquely voiced films that we need right now. So if you're an indie filmmaker and have a specific vision, please stick to it and follow it all the way to the screen. Anyway, guys, thank you again, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could share it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor or on Twitter at the same handle. And thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.